This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, stained glass specialist Brian Clark discusses the importance and challenges of modernising the ancient art form. Architect Massimiliano Locatelli discusses his approach to total architecture. And we hear how workwear has had a makeover with an exhibition in Rotterdam. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Brian Clark is widely regarded as one of the most important creatives working with stained glass today. Across a career that spans more than five decades, Brian has consistently pushed the boundaries of the material and medium, both in terms of technology and its visual potential. His vision for stained glass is fundamentally architectural, and his work has graced projects of architects such as Norman Foster, Zaha Hadid and Renzo Piano. To mark his 70th birthday, some of Brian's work is currently on show at the Newport Street Gallery in London. We went along to meet him. I was a painter. I was always a painter. I always have been a painter. And throughout my uh, artistic life, I think it's difficult to call an artist's life a career, but throughout my artistic life, painting and stained glass have kind of uh, ping-ponged between providing me with a living and uh, I've had periods where without painting I couldn't have survived and periods that have been very successful in terms of stained glass so but uh, that's a very practical side of it but I've always painted and I think that you can't really do stained glass with any serious intellectual uh, uh, robustness uh, or rigour without also painting and drawing. That There's no such thing as a great stained glass artist. The work has to be nourished by painting, by drawing, by experimenting other medium to feed and, and nurture the limitations of the medium of stained glass. So what once mastered are what can make it great and I suppose my artistic life has been interwoven for 50 years really or even a little bit more uh, with finding new ways new technologies and new ideas new, new ways of expressing seeking to remove the idea that stained glass is a medium that expresses very particular issues, very particular things, ecclesiastical, religious subject matter, and I've I've sought to express all kinds and all aspects of the human condition through the medium. Becoming, to some degree, well known as a painter uh, has helped nourish and and deliver commissions and so on in stained glass and and vice versa. If colour forms a big part of your uh, language, Painting seems very limp-wristed after using stained glass. You know, Matisse at the end of his life said, had he discovered stained glass properly earlier, he would have abandoned painting and and concentrated on stained glass. Chagall said much the same. And uh, once you've really come to grips with how the medium of stained glass works and you've jettisoned from your psyche the notion that it's a craft, 
and uh, that it's a craft that is in the service of the ecclesiastics, then a whole world opens up. But it's a world that cannot open up unless it's uh, controlled by and guided by the rigours of painting and poetry and the metres and the musical profundity that exists in, in architecture. It can't exist in isolation. It's changed a bit, but if you wanted to look fine books on stained glass, you went into a bookshop and you had to go to minor arts. It, it has always been my intention to change that, because it is not a minor art. It is only a minor art when it's designed by minor artists, and when it's designed by great artists, as the Middle Ages more inadequately demonstrates, it's truly great art. It is, in fact, the greatest art of the Middle Ages that we produce. The fact that it's architectonic in essence lends it something that's unique, really. I mean, it's a kinetic art, don't forget. Once the light comes through it, it changes. And because light changes in the course of a day and in the course of seasons, uh, it's never static. It's, a complete, it's, a compl it's always moving, it's always changing, it's always altering. And it connects the inside of a building with the outside of a building. The transillumination of colour, making its choreographic way across the interior spaces of buildings, is a magical and mysterious aspect to the medium that is impossible for painting to deliver. One of the great problems that artists using the medium of the stained glass have had to face in the last century is making it appropriate to modern and contemporary architecture. Because leaded glass is not a natural bedfellow with a curtain wall skyscraper, a Miesian uh, or modernist skyscraper. And I've had the good fortune of working with some of the greatest architects of our time uh, over the last 50 years. And uh, the buildings they designed simply were not the right kind of building for leaded glass. So I had to find new ways of expressing myself in sheets of glass, float glass, that could be immense in scale. And uh, I was able to do that with Norman Foster in a number of buildings in Kazakhstan, Saudi Arabia, and a number of other architects. That caused me to have to remove lead from the equation. So the medium had to develop certain new technologies and we, we, we developed very um, interesting and successful in terms of their natural allegiance to the new aesthetic, to the international style. My stained glass, which is almost all, almost, not all, but almost all public art and in public buildings, has to be, to some considerable degree, optimistic. Because you don't want to impose the misery of one's preoccupation with the desolation of loss or death in a public space. Unless it's a church. The church positively encouraged one to do that in the past. But, uh, but, but in a public space, a university, a hospital, a, a bus station, a, an airport, whatever it happens to be, 
I always feel inclined and happily inclined, it's no burden to me, to try and make the experience joyful. And I like the idea that when I make stained glass in public buildings, people want to go back to that space because they want to reinvigorate the primary experience they had when they were there, which is one of sharing with the artist a sense of relentless optimism. What I would say, and it's my earnest hope that I'll be able to continue developing this, that stained glass is capable of dealing, dealing with every aspect of the human condition. Brian Clark there, and my thanks to Sonia Zurav-Leova for fielding that conversation. The exhibition, Brian Clark, A Great Light, is on at London's Newport Street Gallery until the 24th of September 2023. Monocle's July-August double issue contains our annual Quality of Life survey, where we rank the world's top cities, meet local heroes, and tour the neighbourhoods getting it right. See if your city made the cut and where topped our livable leaderboard. Elsewhere, we head to Bratislava to meet its architect-turned-mayor, visit an innovative infrastructure project in rural Alabama, get down on the dance floor in Mexico City and take a thrilling ride across Europe's theme parks. The issue also contains a business report into the owners reviving their high streets and tours a design icon towering above Valencia, plus much more. Kick back this summer with Monocle's July-August issue. Order your copy today or subscribe to get instant access online. We move on to architecture now and meet Massimiliano Locatelli. He's a practitioner that works between Milan and New York, running an architecture firm, Locatelli Partners, and a furniture project, Massimiliano Editions. To find out more about his cross-disciplinary approach, spanning interiors and structures, I caught up with Massimiliano in Milan. He began by introducing his practice. We are a big firm for Milan, a small firm for the entire world, but we are about 75 people in the office. We basically are all architects because, you know, in Italy we don't have interior decorators, or now we are having designers, but before, when I got my degree, we were just architects. So it's interesting because the approach to the project is always from an architectural point of view until, I have to say, five, six, seven years ago. And so in the office, we are like a group of architects with a lot of enthusiasm. We have an office in Milan and one in New York, a small dependance in New York, we call it, because I studied at the Politecnico in Milano, but I did my PhD at the Columbia University. So when I finished it, I had a lot of Italian friends and clients. Oh my God, I need an apartment in New York. I need a store in New York. So we started to work in the States a lot. Since that, we have been, I don't want to say growing, growing and growing, which is stupid to talk about growing, but I like to have a big group because we can face bigger projects. And then we basically work a lot in stores, retail and commercial and residentials, but also we build. When we can build, we're very happy. Tell me, tell me what you mean by building there. Because you... Building, we build a huge factory, for instance. Huge factory for a shoes factory. And it was also a great price. Went to the biennial in Venice and blah, blah, blah. But 
you know, when you build a big factory, it's different than building a private house of a billionaire. A factory has a budget, has a short budget. So it's a completely different project and you have no money, you have to do maximum and, uh, and efficiency and uh, facing a lot of technical problems, so it was really interesting. You're working across the scale of, 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 of projects. You talked there about there wasn't a, a term for interior design in Italy previously, it was just architecture. Is, has there been a, a shift, do you think, or are architects still recognise as the people responsible for like, taking care of everything, not just the structure yeah. of a building, but the at, interior? At the university, as somebody had said before us, but in the university they were saying, we go from the spoon to the city, you know, changing all the scales. The Faculty of Architecture in Italy really has been is a polytechnic so it's really quite high-tech somehow they talk, you talk about mathematics you talk about static but you talk about aesthetics you go talk about interior so you touch different exams and you can like choose some of them so you can build up your own cultural baggage it's also important to understand that we really never had interior decorator school so never happened that architect has been designing a space and then an interior decorator steps in and finishes it. No, no. We have from the beginning to the end. So you draw a house for a person and then you draw the little drawer where they put the underwear in and you have chain scale. What's the benefit of designing like that? What's the benefit of somebody, you know, touching all these different facets okay. or elements? It's really beautiful because you get really in touch with the people you're working with and you become really part of the family. And then the space is their space, but it's also a little bit your baby. And, and uh, there is really a big exchange, deep exchange in everything, starting from you know, money, budgets, and uh, which is a big thing for everybody. When you build, you know, even if it's a small apartment for a young person, when you start renovating it, it's always a problem with, you know, any scale money is important in, in our business, so to take care of it. And then understanding, and it's a very big psychological process too. When you touch, you know, somebody's space, it's really important to be connected and be on the same do you page. Th- do, you, do you think there's like a, a, a benefit to practicing like this? Should people elsewhere it's, in the world be, be looking to this? I have a friend who is a psychologist. Imagine she interviews 10 people every day and she has the problems of 10 people on her shoulders and sometimes she comes to me crying about how heavy is her job and then I realized you know what it's very similar because you have a lot of stuff that people are throwing on you it's very emotional I have really a lot of energy I don't take coke but it's like if I do naturally and I'm really full of energy and I use it all every day and I die in bed and I sleep nine hours a day so really I use it all every day your energy comes from your ability to I guess shape spaces at all scales from that I love my job you know every job you have to love it and it's the only way I really love my job can you give me an example of a, of a project where you've worked on a from all these different scales. In Via Senato, it's a building that was super central next to Monte Napoleone, you know, in the fashion headquarter. We are rebuilding the whole building and it's going to be uh, eight apartments, one on top of the other, but it's going to be kind of a super luxe hotel, the most luxe hotel in Milan. And uh, we are designing everything from the structural thing. We are now up to the roof and now we are talking about, oh, should we call Frette for the bed linen or we should call another company? No, so you go from the structural thing to the bed linen thing. I think that it's very important to be local, to understand where you are, 
and understand the contest. So, you know, respect where you are and also respect the, the owner and the person who's going to use it. How do, you, how do you approach designing for like a brand versus designing for a client? You know, for a brand is much easier because you talk to a CEO, you talk to a designer, if it is a fashion company and you understand each other and then you start. It's an institutional story. When it's private, there are all the really the emotions. When it's a company, there are less emotions. It's more pragmatic. We have to do 100 stores in a year, let's talk about it, the idea, and then you go. Mm. Client is really moody, and, uh, but it's also the nice thing because then you fight or you become really good friends, you know. And that's, I, have you ever done a house? I've not designed a no? house, no, no, no. No, but somebody has designed something for you? Or uh, one day, I mean, a boy can dream. In terms of, I guess, getting to, to know people, it sounds like your relationships, it's, it's really about people first and almost the architecture and design second. How do you start to build those relationships to un- create that understanding? Yeah, all the design pieces that they've done are usually um, needs for the spaces that I was making. So it's not like, let's think about a table, let's draw a table four legs at the top. Every time there is a need, and when there is a need as to be sold, and it's sold for a specific project, then somebody like it can buy it. Otherwise, I don't care. But for instance, I'm always talking about this table, which is called, it's the most famous table. It's called uh, Westlake. It's representing the Westlake in Hanoi. And I was doing the house of the princess of Hanoi, the daughter of the prime minister of Vietnam. And this building was flying on top of the Hanoi uh, Westlake. And she wanted the dining room next to the living room. And I was explaining, or you know, sure, it can be, but in our culture, if you, she was hosting everybody. So maybe we need a room for a dining room, a room for a living room. Like, and she wanted to mix the two. So I was like, sure, let's do a table cutting pieces, which is around in the living room. And if you have a dinner one night, you can move the furniture and put the living room in a dining room. So I cut the table and they said, what can be the shape of the table? So looking outside the window, there was this beautiful, like, the lake. And then it's very soft and very organic and it's cutting in pieces. So that became a table in pieces that you can reorganize and rearrange. If you're in two people, you use one piece. Four people, you put two pieces and so on until a big table for 16 people was. And so that became super popular because everybody liked the idea. You know, Thanksgiving, big dinner, you put all the pieces together or blah 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 so that was a necessity and was a thing and a story and became a different table became a project but came out from a project and that was nice no and so that is the story of one object that and all of them have been created in that way my thanks to massimiliano locatelli there we'll be back in just a moment The Monocle Quality of Life Conference is coming to Munich from the 31st of August to the 2nd of September. Join Monocle's editors and some of the world's best and brightest in Bavaria for the 8th edition. You'll hear from industry leaders, change makers and smart thinkers during three days of inspiring conversation and debate. You'll create meaningful connections with 200 dynamic delegates from all around the globe. Discover a city that's full of surprises and offers the opportunity for a dose of mountain air. And you'll enjoy top-notch hospitality and a hearty Bavarian welcome. Head over to monocle.com forward slash events now. Finally, we head to the Netherlands for a fashion hit and an examination of workwear. The term is bandied about by brands and used as a catch-all for everything from canvas trousers to denim overalls. 
In recent years, the purpose of these garments have strayed from their original intention, which was to protect workers in physical or manual labour. Now, such clothing graces everyday wardrobes and high-end catwalks. A current exhibition, appropriately called Workwear, is on at Rotterdam's Hetnewer Institute. The show considers the clothing style's evolution from functional to fashionable, while also looking at how designers have used workwear to communicate aspirations, political messages and utopian visions. To find out more, we hear from the exhibition's curator, Eldina Baggage. I always get this question, what is workwear and how relevant is today? And what's particularly difficult is this conversation of its irrelevance. I actually don't think it's irrelevant in the last couple of decades. The idea of work changed drastically since workwear was invented, let's say, starting with the Industrial Revolution, when it was specifically designed for work as a protective clothing. In the last couple of decades, we see increase, especially in Western society context, or increase of jobs, office jobs, service jobs, where workwear is not anymore worn. It's mainly suits or any, any type of kind of conventional clothing, while uh, more technical clothing has just been out of sight. In production jobs, they've been taken away out of this context and maybe moved to Asia or Africa. There is no decline in use of workwear. It's just that it's out of our sight. Workwear is designed with uh, function and performance in mind. It embodies utopian qualities, which are both source of inspiration and the blueprint for a different kind of fashion. There is so much potential in workwear that I think it's been overlooked. I didn't approach it as a kind of to show very common types of workwear that everyone sees or thinks that we know about, like first pair of Levi's that's commonly shown in exhibitions of workwear. I think what I try to do is like show something that we hardly know about and we hardly ever see. In the first section, which is called clothing as a tool, we show this kind of functional workwear which is specifically designed for types of work. Such as a proximity suit to, let's say, walk around volcanoes, or survive in cold waters. The suits that were heated for fighter pilots in the 1950s. There is this incredible knowledge and, and really interesting innovation in functional clothing that's has been hardly looked into. Many artists and politicians championed workwear for ideological reasons. And artists such as uh, Alexander Rochenko, then Laszlo Mohlinaj, wore workwear to embody political ethos, the idea that clothes should be an egalitarian uniform for, for everyday life. Then another example is Winston Churchill, who is also associated with the siren suit, was inspired by bricklayer's uh, jumpsuit overalls, and so he had his suits made by Taylor in pinstripe and velvet. It worked for him in a sense to, to unite people. It felt like he's a people's man. It links like Russian constructivism, who proposed productivist suit to replace fashion. Later, Archism 1917 proposed closing as a formula. So there is this uh, kind of historical link, how workwear carries this potential to be a political tool. 
recent example is Tsepo uh, from Johannesburg, designed overalls and a very small collection uh, using three first words of the South African constitution, we the people, which talks about unification of South Africa. So it's interesting that workwear still carries this potential to act as a political tool to bring people together. Workwear has been an endless source of inspiration to fashion designers, especially as the way to challenge fashion itself. Helmut Lang, before he sold company and retired from fashion, was heavily influenced by military. And I think this is when Helmut Lang appeared with clothing. I remember the night as being influential to me. It was kind of amazing how it was genderless and how exciting it was different. His entire work and career has been shaped by work wherein we really influenced by it. He was also saying that he pays lots of attention how a person feels in the clothes and they do lots of tests. They need to sit down and wear it because the confidence of wearing it really is part of it. So the clothes needs to be used. It's about also how you feel in the clothes. There is obviously very strong influence on a streetwear that workwear has, and that's going to continue. There is also this massive shift towards clothing that lasts and aging, that is kind of opposite to fashion cycles, which are fast and not really working in pace of nature. There is a very archaeological approach, and designers really research old techniques and try to recover them in, in a new way. Japan is the center of these tendencies. There are several brands based in Japan, such as Capital and Boasu. This is interesting because they went all the way to indigo dyeing, growing their own seeds, entirely manual process. They look back to look forward. This is really interesting how like young, uh, unknown designers, makers, basically going back to rediscover the real craft. Very complicated, time-consuming, you know. It requires full-on dedication and lots of hard work. We're reviving these traditional forms of dyeing, or work we're using indigo, mud dyeing, because it takes very long time to make, let's say, a pair of jeans or mud dyed clothes that takes about two years. The most common type of clothing across the world for the last hundred years has been jeans, right? And that is a workwear originally that's been converted into streetwear. It's not talked much about, but it's everyday clothing widely used, probably the most commonly used because it's functional. It's the clothing for everyday, for doing anything and everything in every context, for every occasion. There is a uniform aspect of it. What attracts people is the practicality and functionality of clothing that we actually need. Fashion and functionality never been much discussed or explored in that way. There are lots of, uh, let's say, niche. There is a whole scene that follows this type of things and that's looking into it. The designers like Nigel Caborn, there's in Japan lots of them who really love that and they buy old vintage clothing and then they repattern and they get inspired by it and they really look for qualities of clothing like that to, to kind of reinvent it. My aim really to try to communicate how interesting and how inspiring workwear is. I hope people really understand that 
And also, I hope people reevaluate the way we wear and consume clothing as a kind of political ideal of uh, equal, different society to, to functional clothing, technical clothing, that this could be used again as inspiration for new designs, to forms of art and as a communication of completely different things than functional clothing, but also like even in high fashion, you know, influence on Helmut Lang, how is this language used and how it's been refined. There's so many aspects to take away, but I just hope maybe as inspiration, that would be the best. Eldina Begich there. The exhibition, Workwear, is on at Rotterdam's Hetnewer Institute until the 9th of September, 2023. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.